Well, a few months back, I, uh, I joined the teens of Village for a Sunday night Q&A. I was invited to do that, and thankfully, our student ministries director, Smith, she handed me a stack of tiny cards, maybe 20 or 25 of those in advance so that I could prepare. And on these cards, the teens had submitted their anonymous questions. And one of the 25 or so that I got simply read, what is hell like? Details, please. Believe it or not, that was not the, the most challenging question among the 25. And in fact, I didn't actually get around to that one. But today, thanks to the three-year lectionary that provides our Sunday readings and that we follow almost every Sunday, I get to talk about hell a bit, among other things. And I get to do that right before I take a few weeks off, which would not have been my choice. But that's part of the, that's the point of the lectionary, isn't it? I mean, I think, and ironically, you know, it it relates, the point I'm making relates to part of what Jesus is saying to his disciples in our gospel today, Matthew 10. He says in verses 26 and 27, he tells them not to be afraid to say publicly and fearlessly what he has told them privately. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to shout it from the housetops even, he says. But it's going to bring trouble. It's going to bring trouble. It brought him trouble. But it's the truth. And it's going to come to light anyway, Jesus says. We may as well tell it. In fact, we should. It's going to come to light eventually and inevitably. So don't be afraid, he tells them. And I wonder how that lands on you this morning. Don't be afraid to tell the truth. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus declared, If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Some of you may have heard this before, obviously, from Scripture. Some of you may know that the feminist Gloria Steinem named a book, um, The Truth Will Set You Free, But First It Will Tick You Off. She didn't use the word tick. And I doubt she had Matthew 10 in mind. But you know what? And what Jesus is talking about here with regard to trouble when you tell the truth, I think he probably seems to agree. The truth can be troublesome. Some people don't want to hear it or accept it as such. So this ministry that Jesus is entrusting to his followers, it is going to continue to stir up trouble. That's not its ultimate purpose to make trouble, but it's definitely a purposeful condition that the truth creates. This trouble will amount to, for them, to some unique circumstances for witness in front of governors, in front of kings, in front of Jews and Gentiles. For my sake, Jesus says in verse 18, for my sake. And of course, the temptation for us as preachers, but also for us as witnesses of Jesus, uh, is to censor the more troubling bits from Jesus, the unpopular stuff that doesn't sound like the Jesus that we prefer or the one that in many circles that we've inherited in the late modern West, right? There's far more of this troubling stuff, these bits, than many people would like to admit. And they challenge Christians of all politics and personalities and persuasions. They really do. But that's why at bottom, these verses are about the thing that always seems to lie under the thing for us as people. Fear. What are we afraid of? The fear underlying our witness or the lack thereof. And in these verses, it's fear that must be calibrated, so to speak, or rightly directed, trusting our connection to Jesus himself, trusting in the holiness of God. 
Because in fact, Jesus himself suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. We say that every Sunday. And it wasn't because he censored himself. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus had much to say about the relationship between courageous witness and fear. The relationship between truth and trouble. And many scholars actually believe that Matthew made it a point right here to collect these sayings from Jesus in this chapter. Or either Jesus just had a lot to say about it right in this moment. And if you were here last week, you'll recall that in the first 15 verses of chapter 10, which was our reading last week, Matthew names the disciples and then Jesus sends them out with instructions. Where to go and to whom, what to take with them. What to say, what to do, how to respond if people are receptive, how to respond if they're not. But before they go in our verses today, Jesus gets really real, and he describes the conditions into which they are going. They're going toward trouble. And mercifully, Jesus is honest. Mercifully, Jesus spares them sunny platitudes. He doesn't necessarily, certainly doesn't focus on the best possible outcome with regard to how they're going to experience it. He balances encouragement with challenge, and he calls them to trust, to calibrate their fear, to recognize how it's motivating them. And a couple of initial thoughts about the relevance, relevance of this to us, I think, today. First of all, what if they hadn't gone into trouble with trust? What if they hadn't? I think whether you consider yourself more traditional or not as a Christian, your belief rests squarely on theirs and their confidence in it. They took Jesus seriously enough to suffer then for whatever constitutes your faith now. And it's safe to assume that they didn't lose kinship and friendship, that they didn't suffer physical agony and martyrdom just to put Jesus on a buffet line of spiritual options curated by our modern sensibilities. Let's just be real about what a lot of late modern Christianity is really saying about the blood of the martyrs. I think it's an important thing to think about when we think about the kind of faith we pro profess. Second initial thought uh, is very few of us in the modern West can say we've faced anything like what they were about to face and what they did face. You know, being personally ostracized or hated or threatened for professing Jesus. We lament, you know, this, this growing sort of cultural vitriol, resentment toward Christians in the West. You know, we shake our heads over things like the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence that, you know, just mocked the cross at a recent Dodgers game. You know, and, and, and I think we ache, we should ache, when we think of the political captivity of even faithful evangelicalism, or maybe once faithful. But most often, I think for us, our struggle is more philosophical. Just trying to make sense of how Jesus can still be true and good when bad things happen to good people, as we put it. To us, to those we love. We struggle to make sense of that trouble and to trust. And what we know is, what we see is, that the disciples understood that the presence of trouble didn't mean the absence of God. Or of his good purposes, for that matter. Jesus made this clear to them. Trouble was inevitable in the face of genuine witness. Why? Because the world is very hard on truth and on beauty and on goodness. 
So let's walk through these verses. I don't have time to just go drill down into every one, obviously, but I, I want to hit some of the, the, the high points here. In verse 16, Jesus says, look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Sheep among wolves. Not lions, sheep. Not soldiers, but servants. Not leading, but led. Not crusaders, witnesses. Not seizing power, but subverting it through peace. If you can imagine that being possible, we should be able to as believers. Sending you out willing and ready to suffer. It makes me think of an interesting story from the French Reformation. Um, as, as you know, may, you may know, Protestants in France were called Huguenots. That's not how they say it in French, by the way. But in 1562, the kingdom of Navarre, which was in southern France, was ruled by uh, a man named Henry, Henry IV. And he was a Protestant, while so much of France, basically all of France, was Catholic. And he was facing serious threats from the state, right? And so what should he do? What should Navarre do? What should the Huguenots do? Should they take up arms? Should they fight? This was the big question, and the reformer and churchman, Theodore Beza, he famously counseled the king against violence, saying this. He said, Sir, it is truly the lot of the church for which I speak to endure blows and not to strike them. And I love this. He says, But may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Sadly, their resolve for nonviolence was short-lived. The French wars of religion began, the Huguenots were crushed, and seven years after Beza counseled King Henry, there was an ambassador from Venice named Carrero who recorded this, uh, uh, his observations about the French Reformation. This is what he said. He said, the people were clearly, they were rapidly changing their faith, but when the Huguenots passed from words to weapons, the people said, what kind of religion is this? Certainly not the one of Matthew 10, not the mission to which Jesus was calling his disciples. So back to verse 16, the second part of that. Jesus moves from sheep and wolves to serpents and doves, saying, so be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. In other words, the anvil of a wise civility, a peace, is stronger than any hammer. But how is that possible? How can that be? Because truth remains. Truth lasts. It persists. And it prevails. Even if casualties pile up, it will remain. Ideological enemies of the cross in every culture, even those that arise from the church, they're always on the clock. They're always on borrowed time. And this is what Jesus is trying to engender in, in his disciples Lead them toward confidence because the church is not on borrowed time, it's on kairos time, as we say. We're patiently and prayerfully paying attention to the times, to the seasons, and to the spirit. We can be non-anxious and not compulsively afraid of cultural retribution or cancellation. The desired outcome for the church and for each of us as believers is not to win at the world's game. Wise gentleness to which Jesus is calling them, it isn't captive to the lie that power is this zero-sum game that Christians have to, that we have to seize our part of. 
Our posture as one of civility and peace, it stands in stark contrast to what we see in this compulsive power grabbing and competitive, you know, this competition that governs politics and culture and economics in some religion in every age. And so we're meant to stand in contrast. The truth is meant to stand in contrast. The peaceful, the wise civility is meant to stand in contrast to judge that which is not good for anybody, certainly not for the world. And Jesus then tells his disciples in verse 17 that this vulnerable wisdom to which he's calling them, it does include being wary. Wary of people, he says. But why? Why does it include that? Why does he say this? Because we do live in an environment of a prevailing lie, a powerful, prevailing, and persistent lie. And people tend to be captive to it. We do, quite often. It's a powerful lie, and that's why there's so much trouble. So this isn't a call on Jesus' part to cynicism about the world or about people, but it is a call to clarity, to reality, about what's going on in a world that's captive to the power of sin and to the sin of power. So don't be naive. He's saying don't be idealistic. The kingdom is a threat to those powers, and you're going to feel it. Be aware. Then in the verses that follow here, after 17, Jesus assures them that the trouble is actually going to serve the kingdom, which is hard to accept. They're going to find themselves vulnerable before governors and kings, both Jews and Gentiles. Not only the religious authorities and leaders, but those that lead politics, those that lead culture. And you see it throughout the book of Acts. And that's when they'll be given this chance to witness a unique opportunity, an empowered opportunity. We see in their respective letters, both John and Peter, they remind their readers, hey, don't be surprised when you're hated. John says, don't be surprised when you face trials of every kind, Peter says. It's part of it. And in the face of this trouble, though, they can trust in the Spirit of God to lead them. They're going to have to rely on the Spirit. This pressure that they feel, it will produce a unique oil of witness. This pressing will bring out of them a strength that will come in apparent weakness. We see it all throughout Acts, as I said. But I think here, moving, moving on here in verses 21 and 22, and we always put this, it's in the order of service you want to look at it. There's a Bible, should be a Bible in front of you if you're in the pews. These are important for us, I think. 21 and 22, they're instructive for us today because maybe the most difficult thing to handle is the fear of losing family and friends. This is a point that Jesus will pick up again in verse 35. So never mind the political trouble, although that's significant. This is going to get personal. It's going to get relational. It's going to drive right into your living room. And it seems to me that our convictions actually become most vulnerable to fear and to revision when we're facing personal loss or relationship trouble. Think about it. Our, our, our convictions are most strenuously tested when people we love not only believe differently than us, but when they consider those differences between us a threat or an embarrassment. When our loved ones feel unloved because we question their certainties. Even though our hearts are genuinely toward them. And that's how I hope we convey our differences. And I think that's Jesus' intent. 
None of us want to lose family or friends. I mean, that's an understatement, right? Certainly the disciples didn't, but they did lose them. And we might. We might. Because Jesus is pretty clear here. Social pressure from the closest quarters. They will be uniquely powerful. Uniquely powerful. Jesus says they may even call you evil. They called me Bilzable. They called me the devil. And they tried, his, people of his own hometown, they found a reason to try to throw him off a cliff. It didn't work, but they tried. So he's saying, it may be for you like it was for me. And now these last seven verses in our gospel today, just say on the front end, there, there's tension here. There is, uh, so to speak, you know, there, there's both comfort and support, but on the other hand, there's warning. And actually, if we've read the Bible at all, you should know this should not surprise you. There is a tension there. Jesus is bringing comfort and encouragement while at the same time telling the truth that can sound and really does, is a warning. So you have between a call to confident proclamation from the rooftop, he's saying proclaim it, what you've, what you've seen, bring to light what was in darkness. He, he does this in verse 27 between that and then he offers this delicate picture of God's fatherly care for tiny birds in 29. There's a warning in verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I think at a high, the highest level, Jesus understands what motivates us at our cores. And I've already mentioned it. What is it? Fear. What are we afraid of is such a powerful and important question. But Jesus is saying God is the one to fear ultimately. And yet he's the one who cares for the sparrows and who intimately numbers the very hairs on our heads. But he's also the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, in Gehenna, which I'm going to talk about a little more in just a moment. Details, please, right? So fear God, but also fear not. You are more valuable than sparrows to God. But also, seriously, don't fear men more than God. Don't let it cloud truth. Don't let it cloud reality. Or as St. Augustine remarked on this particular passage, let us fear, therefore, that we may not fear. This relationship between fear of God and fear of man. Proverbs say that the fear of man is a snare, but the fear of God is what? The beginning of wisdom. It's how to live. To fear rightly, to fear God, is freedom from the tyranny of all the other fears. That's where it has to begin. This is where Jesus is taking them. To get it reversed is a deep, deep loss. And then verses 32 and 33 are stark. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's just not fuzzy. It's a fork in the road. It asks, does Jesus really matter or not, and to what degree? Will we endure temporary, physical, and relational loss for his sake? Or face the comprehensive loss that comes from diminishing him? It's the worst imaginable loss, is Jesus' ultimate point. It's an existential hell. So, which leads us to Jesus' exact word for hell, Gehenna. 
And that's where I think we need to start on our way to any kinds of details. Gehenna is where he says both bodies and souls are a polyme. They are literally lost. This is lostness. This is, this is the, the worst loss you can imagine. There's a cost. But it's really important here in the text that Gehenna wasn't just an idea or an abstraction. It was an actual burning garbage dump in the valley south, in a valley south of Jerusalem, the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Gehenna was the worst place anyone in Jesus' day could imagine because it was a place they didn't actually have to imagine. They could smell it. They could see it. It was a place where by the time the Romans arrived, they were dumping corpses into it along with the bodies of dead animals. And so for anyone going there, it meant no dignity. It meant no burial, no connection, no remembrance. And from a distance, they said it looked like a lake of fire. Nobody's sleeping this morning. That's why everybody just woke up, maybe. More than just this description, again, as history matters, it mattered to them, it matters to us. In 2 Chronicles 28, the Israelites under King Ahaz found themselves sacrificing their own children in that very valley to the Canaanite god Molech. It's the worst. In 2 Kings 23, though, God's people, they returned to Israel to rebuild after 70 years of Babylonian captivity for that very idolatry. And what do they do to that valley? They turn it into a sewage site, an accursed place remembered only for its shame and its losses. They marked it as such. So do you see and, and feel what Jesus is doing here prophetically and rhetorically He's trying to sow in them a sense of the gravity of this loss because he chooses a, a literal, accessible place to depict this unthinkable level of loss. I think it's safe for us to assume that that's his primary goal, what he's trying to have them think about, what it means to lose God, but maybe to gain the world. And I think it's safe to leave any literal connections back in the Middle Ages when it comes to hell. Jesus isn't giving, you know, he isn't sort of, describing by talking about this literal place exactly what hell is wherever and whenever it is. I think we have a visceral comparison that Jesus is making, saying whatever hell is like, it's the worst. It's the worst, and it comes on the other side of putting heaven in the shadow of earth and putting God in the shadow of men. Jesus issues the challenge to orient our concerns, our fears and motivations rightly. Because they have ultimate consequences, not only now, but in the life to come. But, 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 we have the comfort that the God whom we should fear cares intimately for us. Now and in eternity. So don't be afraid, Jesus tells them, in the same breath. The God who sees everything for what it really is sees you. Tenderly lovingly, mercifully. He even saw Peter this way when Peter denied him three times and was living his own personal hell, at least for a time. Until Jesus met him on the beach to restore him. So two closing thoughts. First, I am, I'm just persuaded uh, my own life and 
in, in, in my ministry, I'm persuaded that generally speaking, that we don't actually believe what we believe until it gets tested. I just think that's true. We don't actually believe what we believe until it gets tested. We believe in it as an abstraction, as a sentiment, maybe as a preference or kind of a cultural expression or maybe a hand-me-down. And certainly those are starting places. But it probably hasn't become a conviction until it actually feels like taking up a cross. Until hope, not certainty, become our substance. Until the unseen, not our limited understanding, becomes evidence enough to face hardship for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. So the second thought is this, in closing. And I want you to think about it before we come to this table of mercy, this table of thanksgiving together. You may know this, but Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. There was a wealthy member of the Jewish religious council named Joseph. He was from Arimathea. And he became a secret believer in Jesus, according to John's gospel. But after the crucifixion, we get from Mark's gospel that Joseph, it says, he took courage and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He risked his influence, his reputation, and even his life Certainly his colleagues and his connections so that he could bury the Lord Jesus in his own newly purchased tomb. Why does that matter to this, to Matthew 10? Because there's a very good chance that Jesus' body would have been thrown into that burning dump of Gehenna to be forgotten like any other crucified criminal had he not been given this tomb. But he wasn't. Friends, the God of infinite wealth and power and acclaim became poor and weak and insignificant enough for our sakes to have no burial place of his own and to face the prospect of being erased like a criminal. And he was buried in the garden tomb of a rich man who should have been his enemy, but who put his faith in him. His body, which did endure a living hell on earth, was rescued by a faithful, fearless man, but then, more importantly, was resurrected by a loving father and his spirit brooding over the tomb in new creation power. This otherwise Gehenna-bound body was raised for these bodies with which and through which we, as Paul told the Corinthians, we always carry around in these bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in them and through them. You have to carry around death to carry around life if you're a Christian. We carry this around even in our troubles, especially in our troubles, even in the teeth of fear and doubt, even in the temporal losses, and they come and they will come. And this is why, friends, we partake of the body and the blood every Sunday. Paul said, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it to one another today. We proclaim it together. And we carry it out into the world to love and serve, rejoicing in the power and listening to the direction of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. Lord, make this real to us as we face whatever we are going to face in the days ahead, in the years ahead. 
in the friendships ahead or the lack thereof or the loss thereof. Lord, let what was true of Jeremiah be true of us. If we say, I will not mention you or speak any more in your name, let there be in our hearts and shut up in our bones a burning fire. Let us be weary with holding it in and proclaim our devotion from the rooftops. As with the psalmist, let it be for us our prayers to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, whatever we're facing, answer us in your saving faithfulness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.